0: 20 years back in 2001, that's when the city-owned banking company collapsed and it's basically left the city with like 6 billion euros of public debt and in the mid-20s then this debt was partly paid off by privatizing half of the over I think 400,000 city-owned public housing units and there were also a lot of rundown buildings in the city but they were not renovated but demolished, that was the situation. And at this time, the, um, city the new city government came into power and it consisted of the Social Democratic Party, the SPD and left-wing uh, PDS, so the Party for Democratic Socialism that's today known as Die Linke. And they followed the, the popular neoliberal path of that time, of the, end of the 1990s, and they wrongly, of course, thought that they could stabilize Britain's financial situation by privatization. And then the financial crisis hit in 2008 and there were big investors coming to the city. They bought up the real estate uh, through the interest rates and basically the city became more and more sold out. And the Deutsche Wohn, the company after which uh, we named our initiative, is one of those companies that bought these flats that were under public ownership before. And they have a very aggressive strategy towards their tenants, just as the other real estate companies, the big ones, uh, such as Archeios, Vonovia, Ado, and Centro. They try to save costs for maintenance. They postpone servicing. They are rising rents to modernization and make tenants pay for it. They mess with the utilities costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of this allows them basically to increase profits and pay their shareholders um, that they are obligated to so i think that's really important to understand the the logic behind these big housing companies that are listed on the stock market to understand that it's really a structural problem they borrowed a lot of money to buy up holdings and they promised their shareholders high profits so i think in a way uh, they are forced to push rents higher and higher um, and this like exploitating the the tenants and and raising rents is like a, a major part of their business strategy and to to understand this, it's, it's really important uh, to emphasize that Berlin is a tenant city, so 85% of its population are tenants. So uh, when a, house, a, a housing crisis like this hits, really the majority of people are affected, and the rent has basically doubled in many parts of the city over the last decade. And this is, of course, especially a problem for people with low income or the unemployed, um, so a large part of the population in Berlin hands over more than 40% of its income to rents. So you can imagine that even smaller increase in rent is then a very serious threat. Um, people and small businesses are pushed off the city. But the housing crisis is also affecting those who are trying to move into the city with a little bit more income, especially those who are discriminated against on the housing market due to racism, for instance. They are forced to accept really high rents or illegally temporary contracts. So yeah, I think it's really important to remember... Sort of how we got to the point where we today and that what we experience today as a housing crisis um, is really the result of this long process of financialization and privatization.
1: Similar to Mira, it's a long process that's happened and um, basically housing has been a kind of core conflict in the history of the Irish state and in the north of Ireland as well um, over the 20th century. Um, and the working class kind of forced massive social housing building, so state-based housing um, in the 30s and 60s. And that was tied, for example, in the north to a civil rights movement because of gerrymandering around housing. And in the south, that was about improving the standard of living, um, I suppose, a social reproductive struggle more broadly. Um, but In the 80s and 90s, there was a move towards... <coughs> First of all, a social partnership model where trade unions and NGOs and larger organisations agree to a kind of social peace. And in that process, there is a gradual privatisation that occurs and kind of an expansion of um, home ownership as the preferred model of housing provision. So by the time we got around 2008, um, social housing have been marginalized from being the main um, type of housing built, for example, in the 60s, to being uh, a very minimal um, part of the housing uh, overall housing market, but also meant that mortgage holding um, on overpriced housing, overpriced mortgages um, during the 1990s and 2000s were the main kind of uh, component or commodity, housing commodity that was there. When 2008 happened, Ireland had a very severe financial crisis and the main banks went, collapsed completely. Um, A lot of it more similar to what happened in America with like over leveraged mortgage markets and financial speculation. So the Irish state uh, did implemented deep austerity measures, um, which were also enforced by the ECB, the European Central Bank and the IMF. Um, and then by 2015, there was a kind of restructuring of the state's approach to housing. Um, they wanted to expand the private rental market. And that was when there's a kind of appeal through tax breaks and the likes to these larger um, financial investors and an emphasis on like build to rent um, apartment blocks and then ver- a privatisation of the remaining social housing provision. So a movement from, instead of having council housing, it was charities uh, build and manage uh, some properties, and other properties are private landlords being subsidised by the state, which at the moment is up to the tune of £4 billion. Between 2008 and 2014, rents were very low because of the kind of general collapse. So I suppose the immediate impact uh, of... That was more limited. Um, It was general poverty, general unemployment, austerity and cuts to community services. But rents really started to uh, increase from 2014, 2015 on. And they're now one of the highest in Europe. The average price for a two-bed in Dublin is €2,000. And wages have been suppressed. So we have an acute housing crisis. It's slightly different to Berlin, as is saying, with 80% being tenants in Berlin. It's closer to 40% in Dublin, for example. So it's more like 40% tenants, 40% mortgage holders and homeowners, uh, and then 20% other forms of subsidised tenancies. So it is a majority overall between social and private tenants uh, in the city, but it's a kind of slightly more uh, limited majority and a very acute crisis. Um, In the north... Um, thinking on an Isle Island basis, because that's all island basis, because that's, I suppose, Catu's remit. Rents are still quite low in the north, and social housing is a little bit higher, but the standard of housing is very poor, and there's moves to privatize. Uh, housing at the moment and privatise the large social housing stock. Social housing, I suppose, in the 90s and 2000s was maintained in the north because it was seen as a form of social peace in a way, and um, that there is a need to keep some of the public housing or state housing in place. Um, but that's trying, starting to be unravelled or attempting to be privatized as we speak. So that's kind of the general contours of the crisis, I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: Hello and welcome to Spadework, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they've had, and what made them. I'm Antje Dieterich, and I'm here today with my co-host, Daniel Gutierrez. You are listening to our third episode, Tenants Strike Back in which we talk to tenant organizers from Berlin and Dublin about the incredible work that has made the success their organizations have experienced possible. Over the span of a few short years, the Deutsche Wohnen & Co. and Eichmann campaign has fundamentally altered Berlin politics as it has been able to successfully mobilize tens of thousands of tenants around a very radical demand. It is time to expropriate big landlords. To realize this, They've been working tirelessly to get a referendum on this year's ballot to demand precisely this. The pressure put on by the campaign pushed the Berlin government to enforce a rent cap. But the comrades say that's not enough. And they're in the process of pushing for 220,000 signatures within the next two months to get the referendum on the ballot. Meanwhile, the comrades at Cartoo Island a union that works as both a tenant union and a community organizing project, started in November of 2019 with a scant 12 members only to then experience a bloom of growth as membership grew to 750 by the end of last month. It marks an incredible growth in an incredibly short time, no doubt in relation to the added stress experienced by tenants and communities in the context of the coronavirus. Yet, despite the virus, the organization has been forced to pivot and adapt to a quickly shifting reality. One that they weren't expecting or prepared for, but nonetheless ceased. On behalf of Caught to Ireland, we have Seamus Farrell, a researcher by trade and an educator and organizer by choice, living currently in Dublin. He has a long history of political activity in both the US and Ireland, as he worked for the Chicago Teachers Union in 2012 and 13 to then return and fight against austerity and privatization in Dublin. In 2015, he helped form the Irish Housing Network and the Dublin Central Housing Network and was involved there until 2020. He is a trade unionist and a shop steward and he is the outgoing national chair of Cartu Ireland. On behalf of Deutsche Wohnen & Co. & Eigenen campaign, we have Mira here with us today. Within the campaign, Mira works in the Staathilfe Working Group a special organ within the campaign apparatus dedicated to organizing and base building. She lives in Berlin-Neukölln and has been involved in tenant struggles since 2019. She was previously involved in different struggles around solidarity, anti-racism and no-border movements. She is also a member of Interventionistische Linke, a fusion organization composed of radical left-wing and undogmatic groups and persons across German-speaking countries. Welcome Welcome Seamus. And Mira, thank you for being here with us on this third episode. To come to my first question, I would like to start with you, Mira. We'd like to begin by asking you about the expropriation campaign. From what we understand, the campaign stands on three different legs, so to speak. The first is, of course, the expropriation referendum itself, arguably the most visible one. But this is more than just a struggle for signatures. Prior to Corona, the campaign had yearly rallies against shareholder summits, and this third leg is the organizing and base-building work of Stadthilfe. Can you tell us a little bit about these legs?
0: So yeah, um, that's right, the campaign is not only about the referendum, although the referendum is of course what we are most concerned with right now, and it is our basic tool to win. So maybe to yeah to, to go a little bit into how this campaign emerged, the campaign went public in 2018, but of course it has a much longer history, and that is also important to understand these um, three legs uh, you mentioned, how they came into being. So I think, uh, first of all, it's very important to emphasize that Berlin has a really big tenant movement since at least 10 years. And our campaign is only one part of this. And I think it would have been never possible without this. There were sort of maybe parallel to the three legs you described, three strands, sort of like how the campaign emerged. So first of all, there were all these tenant initiatives struggling against Deutsche Wohnen and other landlords for years. Um, second, there were more like activist ideas and protest groups that they were, they were thinking and experimenting with how to push back the sold out of the city um, and how to organize housing in new emancipatory um, ways. Of course, these activists uh, were are also tenants because, as I said earlier, eighty-five um, percent of Berlin's population are tenants. Um, but it's it's it was. Maybe, let's say, more people that were already experienced in how to, um, how to build up political struggles. And then there was a third strand that was a referendum in 2015, the uh, so-called Mietenvolksentscheid that uh, proposed a reform of the uh, six remaining city-owned housing companies. And this proposal gained a lot of support, like 50,000 signatures, but the second phase never took place because of some technical errors in the proposed law. But also this, um, and this connects to the history or the the memory of movements, this experience of failing in this sense was very important because um, the involved activists uh, learned a lot from this experience. So this was all before my time because I joined the movement later, but uh, from what I learned from my comrades was that it's really this mutual inspiration sort of between the tenant initiatives on the ground and the more activist-like groups. And then in 2016, there was uh, one uh, popular tenant initiative around the Tor in Berlin, Kreuzberg, the Kotti & Co. They were struggling against the Deutsche Wohnen for a long time and brought up this demand to expropriate. And then it was on the table for the first time. And in the next years, this idea grew um, and, and it was always parallel to the tenant movement. Coming to the three legs, it's, it's important to understand the dynamic of the tenant movement in Berlin. This centralization of the real estate capital um, and these big housing companies that came to Berlin in the, the mid-2000s and bought up the, the housing, it has one advantage, at least I would say. It means that uh, a large group of people are sort of facing the same enemy. And this is, of course, a big plus for organizing. So there were more and more networks and alliances against these big housing housing companies that emerged. And the tenant protest Deutsche Wohnen, the Mieter protest uh, Deutsche Wohnen, was the first one, followed by the Achilles Tenant Work, and yeah, a lot of other networks that were tenant really. Um, they did self-organization in the neighborhoods, but they also came together throughout the city to face their common enemy, their their landlord. And this. Then created a lot of public attention to the housing crisis. The rallies were organized, as you said, together with this big tenant movement. Uh, every year in April, uh, we had these big rallies, and it was it just the issue got more popular in Berlin, and, and it also put more pressure on politicians. And yeah, that's how the claim um, the claim came. Um, we are demanding a referendum on socializing the assets of all landlords who own more than three thousand apartments in the city. That's around two thousand uh, two hundred. Uh, I think. And this claim, that's also one um, strength of the campaign. It's based on an article in the German constitution, the article 15, which says that it's possible to expropriate if this takes place for greater public good and if the expropriated companies are somehow compensated. And we, we think that this compensation should be below market price. But what also makes this referendum special is that we don't think about state-managed process. So this, the agency that is formed after the expropriation, um, it should not be managed by state bureaucracy, but it should be really be tenant-controlled. So what's in the referendum, what I think is so immense of a is that it really poses this, this question of democracy and how to organize housing in the future. So the shareholder rallies are, I would say, not the, they were important ones, but the more important rallies were the one that happened every year in April that were organized by an alliance called Mietenwahnsinnsbündnis, so Rent Madness. That's where really other relevant tenant initiatives and actors and also political groups came together and the rallies were um, the rallies that you talked about that had uh, took place at the shareholder events they were important because of what i described earlier this structural problems of these big housing companies so the logic that is behind behi- behind those companies that visit on stock markets they um they are in a way like forced to push rents higher and higher to pay back their um, their shareholders and by Going to these shareholder events, um, we were able to reach a lot more public attention for the issue and also influence maybe some of the shareholders. And the relation between the referendum and the organizing part is, I think it really needs, I think that our campaign really shows that it needs both. It needs uh, good ideas. It needs experienced activists, that um, collective experiences like the one I, I described with the past referendum, maybe also experiences of failure. It needs expertise, but it, it, it also needs all these tenant initiatives on the ground that are struggling every day against the, uh, the big housing companies. And I think it's, it's uh, the organizing part of the campaign is so crucial because we might or we might not win the referendum, but the tenants will face, will be faced with their everyday problems anyways. And we need a solution for that every, I mean, every day, you know, like we need to get involved in those struggles. And I think that it's really interesting to see that in the beginning, some tenant initiatives were actually also more skeptical about this uh, radical demand to expropriate. And then this idea really grew over the years and it was interesting to see how more and more of those initiatives got excited about it and really saw in the referendum um, a future, a tool for like how to organize housing in the future that kind of goes beyond their daily struggles because um, they, they, they were able to um, have successes definitely on the district levels, on the, and they got public attention. They were able to push back modernization efforts. They were able to prevent rent increases. But this is, this is all sort of temporary, and this is individual. And what the, the campaign, I would say, brings sort of like a horizon for all the tenant initiatives struggling on the ground. And on the other hand, the tenant initiatives struggling on the ground are rooting um, the campaign in the tenant movement.
3: That's just absolutely awesome. Like, <laughs> absolutely heartwarming to hear all of that. Um, yeah, thank you, Mira. Uh, Seamus, um, in difference to the expropriation campaign, CATU isn't unified by a single policy demand, right? Um, can you tell us about the kinds of campaigns and political work that define Katu, and how Katu doesn't fit neatly as a strictly tenant organization?
1: Uh, Thank you, Daniel. And also it's an inspiration to learn more about the uh, expropriation campaign and the organizing in Berlin. Yeah, so CATU started in uh, 2019 um, based off of existing uh, grassroots housing networks and groups um, and kind of infrastructure of struggle. They've been there for five years. And part of the way we were moving at that point was that we didn't feel that we were rooted strongly enough in our local communities where tools like direct action um, and broader campaigns could be built with, I suppose, like very deep participation and lasting participation. Um, so the model that CATU adopted was, I would say, a kind of mix of, we started looking at what was already out there and what what tenants, organizing organisations, unions have been trying to do. So we really started to find an affiliation with the, or an affinity, an interest or engagement with the idea of a community union that we would build, I suppose in a theoretical sense, like a social reproductive struggle, that we would be able to ground ourselves in the core tensions that we all that we experienced, our ability to reproduce our lives, um, our social lives, um, and that meant that we were going to fight on whatever was the major issues um that were impacting at that kind of local community level. That said the second part of that was that we wanted any decisions or how to choose and decide on issues to be built by uh, members themselves, community members themselves. So we kind of tried to build a grassroots democratic process um, as part of it, like embedded in the organising, where once a group forms, a Cat local committee forms, it elects its own committee and then votes on, it kind of discusses all the issues in the area Ranks them and votes on its major uh, concern, and that's what it would tackle. Now, obviously, that can there's tensions over. Uh, does that provide enough like uh, cohesiveness as a national entity? But I suppose really we feel that that process of building up those demands from the bottom up could then be kind of formed into wider um, campaigns and demands as it moves forward. So between 2019 and today, we did one organising drive in one part of Dublin for four months. Um, The demands that emerged from there were based on door knocking and recruitment and committee building. Um, They eventually focused on an eviction ban and um, improving standards, effectively in private tenants accommodation and private rental accommodation. Um, after that, the union grew massively um, and committees have been formed in 12 different uh, areas, eight in Dublin, four in other, other areas, other parts of Ireland, Belfast, Manute, Cork and Galway. In all of those situations, groups have voted on their own key issues um, and cohesed them and now we're at the point where we're actually hosting our first AGM so our existing national steering committee have stepped down local groups have had elections and voted on motions so they've formed the issues and demands including broad campaigns they want to do and those look to be they have to be voted on by the entire membership but public housing rent strikes and rent cuts I'm just thinking about other ones that have come up, I'm not sure there's a, there's a few other interesting um, both political perspectives and kind of tangible campaigns that are already emerging from the kind of rank and file of the union. Yeah, that's, I suppose, how the forming of demands, ideas and processes is kind of happening um, around political demands.
2: Thank you very much. That is actually a very interesting process also to combine basically the development of the demand with the growth and of the actual group and be very inclusive about it. I think it's a very interesting point and I do think we will go back into that later a bit more. But for now, I would still be a little bit in the beginnings of, of your very impressive respective organizations and struggles and talk a little bit about the question of memory. Mira had already mentioned it with the older activists and the experiences that they brought in. And we talked in our very first episode with Shameen Khan and Chris Dixon, um, two organizers from Canada, about the necessity to maintain memory in the struggle and to circulate that memory memory in some some more or less institutionalized or like regular way between rank and file membership. We had talked about the fact that that has a lot to do with leadership development and the ability to bring in new people and mm, allow them to become capable of having important roles within the movement. However, from what I understand, both of your um, organizational structures are partially a product of a continuity of memory And of like a continuity of a struggle within your um, cities. So there are a number of people that developed these organizations and that remained in some kind of function in the struggle and basically brought uh, the lessons learned from the past into the current struggles. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the role of this continuity and this memory that um, what it has in your struggles. I would like to start with Seamus at this point.
1: It's a really great question. Um, I think there's a constant tension between new actions, organizing approaches, um, experiences, identities, and ideas, and that kind of memory and the ability to pass it on and um, engage it and build on it. So I would say that the, ha- the modern Irish housing struggle um, is built on major, there were major housing struggles in the 60s and 70s across the whole island Um, occupations including the seizing of like courthouses to stop evictions, many tactics that were seen uh, happen again Um, mass squatting, social big demands for social housing um, militant anti-eviction so all that was happening in the 60s 70s, into the 80s there were large scale community campaigns and kind of culture and ecosystem of community organising A lot of that got brought under the social partnership and professionalised and integrated into the state in the 90s and 2000s, but strands remained. Um, I think anti-globalisation activists and community activists made up the first response to the housing crisis after 2008. They focused on the setting up of bad banks and that housing that had gone under could be turned over into social housing they focus on exposing financial um capitalism and financial um, misdeeds and problems that were happening and um, they focus on the abandonment of communities and community cuts and um, most of their tactics were focused around creative interventions um, and, pro- and like mobilizations and highlighting kind of an education framework of public education around these issues and then in 2015 as the crisis started to shift, we had this massive water anti-water privatization movement um, huge scale. Um, hundred thousand people mobilized in Dublin. Committees in neighborhoods across the island were in the Republic of Ireland were focused on blocking the installation of water meters which could measure readings um, and then be used to charge people for water. So there was community pickets happening um, and a lot of the old infrastructure of the '90s, 80s, 90s and 2000s started to re-emerge and new waves of young, unemployed or precarious um, people were getting involved. And in that context I think three new groups emerged and wanted to take some mantle in the housing struggle and that I would be included myself in that kind of wave. It was like young private tenants who were quite precarious or unemployed, um, young families who were facing the privatization of the housing uh, social housing and um, where they couldn't access social housing as before and were being basically shut out and forced into homelessness or very precarious impoverished um, semi privatized housing structures and then a new group of i suppose migrant and multi uh, racial uh, Irish uh, activists who hadn't been on the stage before. Um, been, Ireland has become a quite, very much more diverse place in the last 30 years and anti-racism has been built into the Republican socialist tradition but the actual self-expression of that struggle of anti-racism and racial justice hadn't happened before and um, to such an extent. So Asylum Seekers self-organised in Cork in 2013 and locked out their management of the detention centre and occupied it for a week. And out of that was born the movement of, of asylum seekers, Massey. Um, so those kind of groups formulated a new core in 2015 um, focused on housing and linking together institutional uh, anti-racism and asylum-seeking, migration, um, experiences of community and the main methods that were there were to take direct action kind of more speculative direct action so we've seized and occupied buildings demand that they be expropriated and so like kind of the demand by deed and also community-based support so running clinics in local areas where we're dealing with housing issues and then turning those into collective direct actions um, and kind of collective community demands and then a third tactic was forcing the larger institutions and organisations to start mobilising around housing. Um, so we were kind of a pressure from the left or underneath bigger, slower moving organisations. So I think all of those collective memories um, feed into the formation of CATU. Um, some people were very frustrated by the experience of there not being an organisational structure that can contain, hold and develop the kind of grassroots struggle that was happening and that there felt like there was this process of like escalation and drop that was a burnout and that we needed a new form, a new organizational structure, which could be a union. So that's that process of a new thing. And then, there's also the process of we're learning and adapting tools that are already there. That would be more my personal perspective that we were already doing direct action and support and community organising and now we could turn that into a mass membership organisation because the support base was there. I think that's the kind of collecting of memories so we have people from struggles for seven years people who have come in a new wave from 2018 2019 on and then people in an even older wave of community and activist struggles from the 2000s and even 1990s I think all of those build on each other sometimes with friction but often with if there's space and time and support and ability to learn and grow from those experiences and knowledge
2: That is actually a very interesting point that you um, mentioned there with the feeling of a burnout if you don't have the possibility to learn from past struggles. Because you have, by definition, we are struggling against a very established system from the left. And so, per definition, we are also going to lose some of those battles. That's just how it is. Um, and to learn from that and not have the feeling every five or ten years that now you're really onto something, and then it fails, and then you're like the only one and on you're alone, <laughs> but to like have this kind of continuity I think is a really good way to keep also activists emotionally fit almost I feel as like
3: yeah to to understand this as a process right like of course in this like we're at the beginning of a major recomposition of working class forces and it's trial and error and to understand the error as fundamental to the process that failure um, quote unquote failure is what makes um, learning possible is a much more healthier way to think of this as just a a long series of defeats.
2: And I also think it's interesting that um, I wasn't really aware that Kato is actually an attempt to create a certain long-lastingness. I think that's a a very important function, actually, within the political system.
0: Thank you for the question. I think it's it's a really interesting question, and I really like the... Connection between memory and learning, because I think that is also crucial to um, our approach of organizing in the campaign, and that is basically that we can learn from past errors, we can learn from successes, and, um, and we have to focus on transmitting experiences, and we have to and we have to transmit experiences to new people that want to get involved in the movement because I think that is also a crucial point. How do we how do we get more? How do we get more people involved and how do we learn the tools from, how do we transmit the tools that we learned from the past? How do we transmit those to uh, people that want to get involved now? And yeah, as I said earlier, I think that for the Deutsche Wohnen Kuh- and um it, it really has been these, Past 10 years that were really crucial in terms of collective memory it was the, the failed referendum, it was the tenant initiatives on the ground and their struggles it was, uh, it was the creativity of activists um, that were experimenting with different ideas um, and I think what's also important is um, to really have um, different people in the movement that are coming from different backgrounds but also different ages you know because I mean I moved to Berlin um, more than 10 years ago so I experienced uh, lower rents in Berlin and I think that is this just this experience is really crucial to to have had the experience that there was a time and I mean it was even different before where you didn't have to uh, line up for hours just in order to get a look um, at a new flat you know and I think that and uh, these, these memories are also important for people to realize that it's not determined the way it is now, that it, it was different once before.
2: Now, already heard, there is like a, a tenant movement, there are people protesting, there, is, um, there are pressure groups trying to have an impact in politics. But Starthilfe in both our perspectives, Daniel's and mine, is really an organizational innovation, that you created a body that does, the, uh, with volunteers, but that does training, seeding, basically, within the city in tenant organizing. The way I understand your function is getting other people to do organizing. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how, you, how the idea of Stadthilfe came about and how you organize yourself, how you sustain yourself in doing this kind of seeding activity.
0: So the, the idea was really how do you start something and the people that, that founded Startif wanted to transmit their experience to other tenants in the city so that they can basically organize themselves against their landlords. That's also where the term comes from, Starter or uh, I think Jumpstart would be the uh, translation. So the idea is uh, sort of like health, help for self, self-help self and the idea is that we only in the beginning, ideally, and then we pass on the knowledge, and most importantly, we, maybe it's, it's also a little bit to, like, demystify organizing. That's what um, made the Stadthilfe so appealing to me when I got involved in 2019. It was really, this is a place where I can learn from other organizers how to do organizing. Um, and it's something that everyone can learn because it involves certain tools, um, and a lot of experience, of course. So, yeah, that's, um, that's how it was formed. And then there, basically through three strands, it was a brochure um, that my comrades wrote. Um, it was basically like a how-to, how to organize a neighborhood assembly, how to talk to your neighbors, how to talk to the press. Um, they wrote all this down in a, a brochure that will hopefully also be translated into English soon. They started to organize workshops uh, around the same topics, um, how to organize a good meeting, how to get in touch with your neighbors, really basic things, actually. That's the interesting thing. I think sometimes when people approach us, they think that we have these really complex tools. um, And and in the end, it's it's really small things. It's really uh, um, how to uh, lead a conversation with your neighbors in a way where that other person really feels encouraged to be engaged afterwards. Um, and the third strand is the concrete support. So we, um, as depending on how much capacities we we have, we really try to um, to to support initiatives that are um, that want to uh, get involved, that want to be more active. We help them, yeah, with different things.
3: Yeah, if you could tell us a little bit, more about the what blitzes are and how how they function, that'd be great.
0: Sure, they are my, my, the favorite part of uh, our organizing practices, our our blitzes. So a blitz is basically a big door-knocking campaign um, around specific housing complexes that are all owned by one landlord. Um, so that would be... And, and the, the basic of the, these blitzes is that tenants um, that live in these houses that are owned by the same landlord are facing the same problem. For instance... Um, they got a notification that the rents will increase due to modernization and the company is trying to make them pay for the modernization. So basically something that is about to happen in the future, but it's still possible to turn it around. It's still possible to win a fight. And then most of the times we get approached by a few tenants that are already organized in a housing complex or that heard from us and we sit down together with them, and we prepare um, a one-day action. That's like our door-knocking campaign. is like a one-action that is followed by a first meeting. So we um, we try to figure out what's the aim. Um, we try to do a mapping of the housing complex. We prepare the materials, and then we bring to bring together people from our pool, volunteer pool. Um, so from outside and inside the housing complex, we offer a, sh- a small training, uh, how to approach people, how to talk uh, to your neighbors. And then we we go into practice and that's the most fun part of it. So we go out with like, around 20 people, um, the more the better. Uh, we knock on doors and we uh, invite people to the first meeting. And this um, might sound banal, maybe for uh, organizers uh, in in the U.S., for instance, because I think it's much more common to have these personal conversations. But I think that in, in Germany, uh, I mean, we have a big uh, leaflet culture. Um, activists are leaving uh, leaflets in the uh, in the mailboxes, and and but our that's why our approach differs. We really think that the personal conversation makes uh, the difference, and then what we focus in in these conversations on the door is uh, what we call our like organizing cycle anger hope action so we um we first of all are talking um to people like what makes them angry what are their problems then we are um trying to to raise hope we are trying to um to convey that if we come together, if we make a plan together, then it's possible to turn this around and then um, we make a plan to win. So um, uh, let's come together, let's meet uh, next Sunday. And then we also help organizing these first meetings, uh, sometimes also uh, beyond the first meeting where we make this uh, plan to win. And it's really um, an incredible experience uh, of solidarity at these uh, blitzes it's uh of course in the beginning it's um yeah i mean it's it's not easy like you you not everyone is welcoming you but once uh you get into it and then yeah you sit on people people's couches and chat with them it's really uh, a way to to get in touch with with other tenants it's that's the great thing about it and our hope is that um People that uh, that took part of our blitzes will also organize these blitzes themselves in the future. And maybe one more thing: it's a uh, it's a tool that uh, we borrowed from trade unions that were working with this um, before.
2: There is one more uh, word that I wrote down for the interview and for the question for you about Starthilfe before we will go a little bit more into Kato. But um, the word kids team. So, kids' team
0: is um, part of our uh, structure to collect signatures. So, what I described earlier was sort of our, the main business of Starthilfe. But now, um, as you said earlier, we are preparing for the second phase of our referendum, and we have to collect 170,000 uh, valid signatures um, within four months. So, it's a huge task and... Um, the other, uh, I mean, we have d- different working groups in the campaign and um, the, we have a, a Sammel AG, the collection working group of the campaign. They, um, uh, they came about with this idea about what with Keats teams. So Keats teams, uh, Keats uh, in Berlin is, is more like uh, a neighborhood, a little bit bigger as a neighborhood. And the Keats teams are, uh, they, they're called Keats teams, but they operate more on the district levels. So um, I just heard yesterday this incredible number that right now there are 720 people involved in the, the kids team structures. Um, and our goal is to reach the, the 1,000 um, until the, uh, the 26th. That's when our uh, collection phase starts. And uh, it's basically the idea that, because, I mean, other referendums um, in Berlin sometimes had the support of big um, organizations we also have that and we are working on that but i think our campaign our referendum relies much more on really like tenants uh, and activists going out to um, to collect signatures and that's why we really needed we uh, really felt like we needed a structure that is operating on the neighborhood level as much as possible and um, so yeah that's uh, where we, we organize and right now um, there are like tons of digital meetings uh, every night where these kids teams are formed um, and the idea is to not only collect signatures but of course also to implement some organizing techniques um, in these kids teams. One because um, we were we of course we need to find a strategy to successfully collect the signatures but also because the idea of the AG was also really to go beyond that and to um, to motivate people to get involved also for for the future
2: thank you very much um, that is actually also a very interesting point where the referendum campaign and the tenant organizing really strengthen each other right if um, you have 1000, people knocking on doors talking about how the housing situation is terrible and how there is this referendum even if the referendum wouldn't go through you still would have a thousand people that really talk to a lot of people and that might have opened up doors for other ways to fight those landlords so I think it's uh, for the two of us for Daniela it's very important it became more important recently to to not feed further into this um, strict separation of organizing and mobilizing as two things that are basically to fight each other, uh, but to understand that there are different techniques and different practices that can help for the same cause and that need to be applied depending on what needs to be done right now, what is the relational forces, what is where we have to intervene. I think that's a very, very important understanding. To not get too stuck to your own favorite political activity, let's say. Thank you.
3: Seamus, we want to ask a little bit about uh, the kind of leadership development programs um, that you all have in CATU. That is basically organizing is about distributing the capabilities of leadership outward and downward to create leaderful movements. Like that's basically what Stathilfe is doing, right? Like there are people that need help and then they pass over the tools so that they can then help themselves. We were wondering um, what programs or mechanisms or practices do you all have um, in order to um, develop the capabilities of rank and file in CATU?
1: Thanks for the question. It's really I love uh, the nitty gritty of uh, how we learn from each other. So I find this bit really, really interesting and, and really engaging to find out about how it's been working in Berlin. Um, so I suppose there's two levels to this. The first is how do you develop a basic set of skills and practices uh, for every single member um, where they feel confident? And then the second layer is once people have that basic confidence where they Be moved into action and moved into participation how do they then be developed to be able to in a sense lead and uh, kind of drive forward at at multiple levels the kind of organization so the first bit in terms of our core entry-level organizing education I'd echo what's already been said like organizing is is about building confidence and it's a set of tools like a carpenter is a set of tools like a a researcher has a laptop and whatever else and um, people need tools and that helps them have confidence and it acts as kind of a scaffolding and it is as basic as possible that we drew at the start from live and rent and uh, acorn in the uk um, and scotland and their approach to i suppose what you could call something like foothold organizing like how to first get established in a place uh, we would have a very basic model where it's like recruit put people into action and then similar to what's been talked about Berlin be able to have a meeting and elect a committee so we always move it that way the recruitment wrap is actually what are the issues you are facing and you are finding your experience anyone you know your friends your family it's always about the issues of the people you're talking about it's more like the McAlevey approach or variations of that you can go very broad and build kind of a coalition and be able to mobilize and then if things kick off i always feel uh, you've got you need to have a capacity to do a more explosive organizing style the water charges in ireland um, when people started blockading um estates you need to be able to respond and put people out on the ground and see it snowball and bring as many people in because people are moving quickly. So I think leaving a little bit of flexibility and reserve capacity almost for that space is very important as well. So we... Once we have that basic organizing capacity built, um, which has happened in an uneven way because of the pandemic year, I think in particular, and because of our lack of resources in a way, we don't have enough paid people or volunteers to evenly distribute a lot of that knowledge. Um, But we do have three ways that's happening now. So power is distributed as well as learning happening into committees in local areas. We say, once you have 15 members in the local area, you can organize together. We put people together in one neighborhood. Let's say it's five or six people. We put them together in a WhatsApp. We give them the basic tools, um, maybe some leaflets. Um, they come to a training, if the, the standard trainings, and they need to self-organize. And it is like a kind of a threshold thing. They can't self-organize, they'll kind of come along to other things and be more passive supporter. If they're able to manage to get 15, they can launch a committee and they've already gone through some level of, in some ways, a testing of um, of basic organizing in a supportive way, not in a kind of too rigorous, uh, painful, mean way. Um, so once there's 15, there's then an autonomy and an ability to develop skills at that level that's very important i think in terms of leadership emerging out of that now we haven't been formally developing leadership in a more um advanced way but i think leadership starts to more emerge in that process of the first organizing struggle then at a national level um In some ways, the people who started the union were all involved in some form of grassroots housing organizing or other forms of organizing, like um, there's a Brazilian left group. Um, People have been involved in anti-racism work. People have been involved in community um, before. So it was kind of semi-experienced people. Still, we always felt we were a lot of uh, novices because knowledge feels like you need to have five degrees and 20 years experience and that's obviously bullshit Um, but we all had some knowledge and experience and now like we're all stepped down and had to run for election I think that is very important for creating a national leadership, a new national leadership to emerge, that there isn't like an informal shadow cabinet making all the decisions and that power is seeded over and then redistributed and then um, Rosa Luxemburg set up a new British and Irish um, section, the Rosa Luxembourg Foundation, and they uh, we got funding from them for an education role. So we've had a part-time education officer um, who's done a fantastic job of developing an education infrastructure for the union. So he was running basic training, like the cores of the union, how to recruit membership defense, committee building and campaigns um, throughout, 20, throughout the pandemic on, on online on Zoom and that was for general members. Anyone who's a member could basically participate in those. Uh, the education officer wanted to go to local groups and run local training, but that wasn't really possible because of the way things have worked out. And then um, an education group was formed um, from people who seemed to be more trained a trainer who wanted to facilitate education. And a uh, winter school was ran, which had like, Uh, attend to the membership almost Uh, so out of 700 there were 100 people odd um, attended or 70 to 100 so that kind of started to go into a more uh, advanced or comprehensive form of education and learning where we covered organizing um, anti-oppression and anti-discrimination and we covered political economy so we were starting to develop from the bottom up I think uh, those interlocked dynamics and how you how you learn about those and leadership emerging in that way and now there's a kind of like a permanent education group uh, in the union and we're running like a how to organize in a pandemic and out of a pandemic and what what we want to see for communities so i think that speaks a little bit more to that transformative process where we're looking beyond our immediate world and our immediate wins and losses towards what we want to transform and um yeah so i think those are the elements, two steps of developing leaders, I think, in the union.
3: We want to ask a little bit, Seamus, about the, the growth that you all have uh, experienced. Um, obviously, growth is what every worker's organization dreams of. The more members, the more resources, the more energy, the more you can do. Can you tell us a bit about the differences in organizational strategies and imperatives that growth has entailed? That is, the problem of having 12 members and the problems that come with having 750 members have to be different. Can you tell us about what's changed and what stayed the same across that um, process?
1: It's an interesting challenge. It's a great challenge to have, as you've said yourself, um, to grow rapidly. Um, I would say that it's both growth and growth that's predominantly based not on one-on-one conversations and not on that kind of rich uh, relationship building that happens outside of a pandemic in, an, in this kind of organizing approach. So we have that problem too, that people just don't get to meet each other enough. Now, a flip side of that is that people don't as quickly form kind of like cliques or insular kind of groups, uh, which exclude other people. So there's also a level of openness that's happening um, with that. So there's a pr- plus and a minus to it. So at the very start we had the challenge that we were moving from grassroots groups into an organization that was a legal structure with a very small number of people and there was a bit of a weight on the shoulders um if we fail uh this is what we why, why are we doing this like if we fail it's all on us kind of feeling i think when we had small numbers and also the sheer need to learn quickly how to run a legal organization how to collect dues Money and um, from from members and um, how to instill confidence, how not to be, I suppose, a little bit like a automatic leadership that creates a passive membership um, as well. So that was some of the challenges at a smaller scale. And um, we went from twelve members to about forty. So we recruited about thirty through the first organizing drive, which um, we were also conscious, according to more Acorn and Live and Rent approaches You want you're, you're wanting to hit more like 60 or 80 new members in an organizing drive of 10 weeks. So just a certain extent, we were like, oh, we're failing at this. This is not as good as we should be doing. But we were learning, I suppose, and learning through our successes and our failures. And we were happy to be able to launch our first committee um, with 40 members in the union last February. Then a pandemic happened. Our plan originally was to then go on to a next area, a next neighborhood, and deep organize in that next area um, with us now having a few bit more resources. And it would, again, kind of be a slightly slow route of building. We'd want to recruit 60 or so members. So we'd be closer to 100 by the summer of September. Um, But when the pandemic happened, we had to really reorganise ourselves. So we kind of had to have a series of meetings and really think about how we can organise when we don't have the capacity to do that kind of deep uh, relationship building and also bigger events in the local community because they're not safe. So we opened the membership to anyone being able to join anywhere on the island um, we started just fishing, I suppose, for areas which could uh, form committees where there was interest, where there was existing connections, um, while also being conscious that we didn't want just to reproduce a layer of activists uh, and people who know other people. We wanted to reach beyond that. So we were able to form three other committees by the May. Our membership had grown to about 150, um, so that was three months later. When the summer happened, the lockdown loosened a little bit and there were major issues. Uh, series of evictions very public evictions that happened and that other groups were responded to very quickly and that created this mass storm online across the summer and into september where people were like we can't let evictions happen join CATU. we have to be organized as tenants join CATU." Um, and so it became this like self self-propelling force and um, at that point We were sitting in October, where we just simply hadn't met. Our membership had grown to about five hundred from thirty or forty. We just hadn't met people, so we had to switch a little bit from a sense of control into a sense of we have to trust people. We have to give them resources and skills, uh, distribute them out to larger groups of people and less concentrated, and less uh, you know almost less organized in a way. We need to just rapidly put out stuff that was useful for people to allow them to develop. Um, And we need to reorientate that way. And we need to allow power to distribute more out to local groups and allow them to meet each other. So that, I think, was very important. And then at a national level, we felt that we need to stop pushing ourselves to just continue to grow rapidly. We needed to hire um, and we needed to slow ourselves down and look after ourselves a bit better and pass on a kind of culture of care and structured care in a way that doesn't always see us as like, machines who hit sales targets constantly so i think there was a strain at a national level um in terms of that care versus target approach and in terms of the share of growth and how to like seed power and then there was a strain at a local level because local committees were rapidly growing who felt they didn't have enough resources or knowledge and wanted more say at the same time and there's this kind of creative tension and a To be honest, a positive thing is to have a little bit of conflict between a national organisation and and local groups because they're that's them asserting their agency. So that was kind of starting to emerge, particularly as groups developed quite quickly around the island, Um, and we're taking quite to be honest quite different approaches to organising. Belfast um, sprung into action based on people who'd already done tenants organising, um, and they were, like, direct action focused, rapidly moving. Um, groups in, for example, Cork and Galway were, were slower moving and focused more on relationship building, in a way. Um, so you see these different approaches, and there's an instinct at a national steering level to kind of tell people what was wrong or right, which is uh, bad. It's alienating, rather than positively encouraging and develop resources. So, yeah, I think it's been great. It's challenging. we like, we need now, we needed to elect a new committee. We need to hire further to support our organising work. And um, we need to deepen our organising in local areas because we've become um, quite wide and broad and we have a chance that we won't firmly root ourselves. And then people will kind of, we don't have concentrated power then and people need to win in order to keep going. Um, so yeah, that's that's why I'd say the challenges and positives of the massive growth would be.
3: How has the pandemic affected your organization? How have you dealt with the problem that social distance entails? What practices and mechanisms had to go out the window, and which ones did you develop in response?
0: Um, first of all, I want to say that uh, it's it's really really inspiring what you what you just described, James. It's um, I think that also we as staff can really learn a lot from you because this this whole challenge that we are also facing, how to build up a long lasting organizational structure how to re- distribute power that's uh discussions we 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 also having uh, in and, uh and it's really really impressive to me what you built up there yeah yeah how did the pandemic affect us um it was pretty difficult in the beginning because um as i described earlier our main organizing practices were so much focused on having these personal conversations with people knocking on people's doors and um we were we were definitely a little bit lost in the beginning because i think that we also felt a little bit alienated from um from the tenant initiatives and um a lot of the groups we had been in touch with were also a lot of older members so of course there were even stronger concerns about um, meeting in person Um, so that was difficult and throughout the summer um, also because the numbers in Berlin were low it got easier there were a lot of um, I mean we we started doing supporting blitzes again we There were a lot of outside meetings, so summer was really crucial at that point. Um, And then now for the campaign, um, it's obviously a big challenge because we only have four months to uh, collect these um, over 200,000 signatures, I mean 170,000 valid signatures. Um, And so far there hasn't been any sign from the Berlin government that we would get more time or that there would be yeah, any possibility to change the law in the way that we could have digital signatures or something like that. Um, so it's definitely going to be a challenge. We have a whole task force that's just concerned with these questions, how to collect signature in a safe way. We will... We, the, the big challenge will be that they are not going to be these big demonstrations. And, I mean, there was one the, the 1st of May, I think, in the last collection phase, um where we collected, I don't know, like ten thousand signatures on one day or something, and we won't have that. So it's gonna, uh, it's definitely gonna come down much more to um, neighborhoods and um, yeah, everything that's that's possible on that level. On the other side, say something maybe positive in this uh, um, very difficult situation is that right now. Um, we have a lot of people joining our online meetings because there's, there's just not that much to do at night, so um, I think that people are, that it's just, yeah, I think that that might be one reason why a, a lot of people are joining. I don't know if, if uh, it would be even possible to, uh, to meet that often um, offline. But of course, there's also this really important social aspect, uh, and we we were thinking about how to build that up, like having actions to put on, uh, to to flyer, and and all of that to just like get out there. There's one kids that organized a great um, walk, a kids spaziergang, where they. Uh, walked around the neighborhood with uh, older members of the community, um, talking about the history of the building, stuff like that that you can do outside. And yeah, that's that's just one example for how I think creativity is very necessary. Um, another um, challenge is, of course, that what I just talked about that a lot of people are coming to the online meetings. That's a lot of young people, that's a lot of um, students um, that want to get involved, maybe people that have also a little bit of experience in, um, in politics. And so the, the other big challenge is uh, how to make our key teams, stu- structures really more heterogeneous and also reach out to those people that would come to a neighborhood assembly, but that would not join uh, a Zoom meeting
3: we have one question from the audience that hasn't already been covered by the the questions we've asked um and someone from the audience would like to know uh within the deutsche wohnen struggle what is the role of unions in this have they been involved where are they
0: yes so we have a task force for uh, coalition building and um the unions are one part of that so we are Uh, In the process still of reaching out to different unions and to get their support, we already got the support from the um, uh, Verdi Union, um, which is a big success. And we also uh, organized an event in summer together with Verdi and um, other big organizations on socialization. And the aim was to also broaden the debate because we are focused obviously on housing. But our aim is also, um, in the best case, to spark a, de- a broader debate on socialization that goes beyond housing, but that also involves topics like health uh, or labor. And um, yeah, labor unions are definitely uh, an important part in this.
2: I feel we have actually covered everything. Thank you so much for being here with us and answering all our questions partially very detailed and very much focused on the tiny little issues everyone runs in when doing organizing
3: Thank you Seamus, thank you Mira for coming on board
2: uh, Thanks
0: for organizing this podcast It was very inspiring, thanks James, for uh, sharing your experience on this island and I hope to learn more from that in the future
1: Thanks Mira too, I can't wait to go to Berlin at some stage and people to be in Dublin and we can all see each other in person Oh, that'd be
3: great mm-hmm.
2: Find out more about Cartoon and Deutsche Wohnen co Eignen in, in the episode description. Thank you for tuning into Spadework Podcast an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding and effective political organizations. This project is made possible by so many labors We'd like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and War Magazine for their comradely support. We'd also like to extend a deeply felt thank you to Andreas for his unending technical support. For supplementary resources, please see our episode description.